Hi, family. Welcome to our midweek service as we're studying the book of Zechariah. And tonight we're going to start in the second half of the book. You know, all of the prophecies and the visions that Zechariah has had have led us to this point. And, and this is going to be so exciting. You want to be sure and take good notes and follow along with me tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your amazing love, your gifts of grace to us. We thank you that, God, today we live in light of all of the fulfilled promises that Jesus completed. And tonight, as we look at one of those written 500 years before Jesus was even born, we ask you, Lord, to bless our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really glad that you're here tonight. Have you ever had the experience of looking for something and you thought you knew where it was at and it wasn't there? Or ever you had this experience? I thought it was in a, a blue box and it turned out to be in a green box. You know, you just, things get lost in the garage, things get lost sometimes in my study. What's really bad is when things get lost on my computer. And of course, now that we got fined, it doesn't happen to me quite as much. But before we had that, I can remember just digging through files on the computer trying to find something that I lost. Well, the Jewish people had made that mistake because we're going to look at one of those very clear prophecies. They missed the first coming of Jesus for the most part because they were looking for Jesus and they didn't expect him to come the way that he came. And sometimes I find people today, they even, they're looking in the wrong way. They, they look for God to be like Aladdin's genie, you know, that he's going to grant their wishes. And over the years, I've had talked to so many people and says, well, God didn't do what I asked him to do. And I've just kind of gently reminded them God's not a genie. And sometimes if we're not asking according to the will of God, uh, that's why it's so important that we recognize and discern what the will of the Lord is. We can get very confused. But tonight, we're going to gain a greater understanding of who Jesus is. We're going to gain a greater understanding of his coming, his first coming, and his second coming. And we're also going to understand something else tonight. For people who are prepared to meet the Lord, his first coming was a joy. His second coming will be a joy. For people who are not prepared to meet the Lord, his first coming wasn't a joy, and his second coming will also not be a joy. We're grieved tonight. We're grieving with the families in Texas as 19 children from the last count that I got. And as I looked at pictures of those babies that lost their lives, second and third graders, as I looked at those children, and as a mother told me today, she said, when I dropped my daughter off at kindergarten, she said, I really didn't even want to drop her off at school today because I was so frightened. And I'm not going to be pointing fingers at why that happened. I just want to grieve for the people that are grieving. But it's not coincidental to me tonight that we would be talking about this on this midweek service of what happened. And after the service tonight, we're going to be taking communion here. For those of you that are with us tonight, we're going to be taking communion tonight. We're going to grieve and we're going to lament, but we first of all want to look at what the Word of the Lord says. The first part of this chapter, as I begin to read it in just a moment, it predicts the coming of Alexander the Great. Now, if you were with me when we went through the book of Daniel, we did quite a bit of study on this. 
Alexander the Great was a ruthless conqueror. Uh, Josephus records that Alexander the Great would conquer cities, conquer kingdoms. He would kill all the men. He'd sell the women and the children into slavery to continue raising money. But this book records the fact that Alexander is going to be used of God to conquer. All, this is long before Alexander. He's going to be used of God to conquer Israel's enemies. It's also interesting that Josephus mentions, and Dick, I know that you were a, a big lover of Josephus and read his book. Josephus talks about how that when Alexander the Great got to Jerusalem, he didn't burn Jerusalem. But riding up to Jerusalem, he got off and he bowed at the temple and he fell prostrate and he worshiped. And his generals were shocked because he was generally burning the cities. But what had happened, the high priest had come out to meet him after they had made uh, sacrifices to the Lord in the temple. And the high priest came out to meet him. And Alexander had had a vision of this high priest before he began his campaign to conquer Persia. And he told his generals, the reason we're not going to burn this city, he said, this is the man I saw. This is the city I saw in my vision he said, this is the God who called me to do what I'm doing. And this was fulfilling. This is what makes prophecy so exciting for those of us who can look back. These first few verses was actually fulfilling. But now you've got to understand, for the cities in the first eight verses we're going to read about, this is not good news. These are the enemies of Israel. They didn't want to hear about a coming king that was going to conquer them. For the children of Israel, it was good news, and we'll get into that, why it was good news tonight. For some people, the coming of Jesus is not good news because we want to rule our own lives. We don't want Christ to rule our lives. Even some Christians struggle with that. And that's the reason that beautiful doctrine of sanctification that teaches us how that we daily die to ourselves and how that God daily works on us to make us more like Christ each of us battle that own sin nature sometime in our own lives where we want our will rather than the Lord's will. When I was a child, we used to sing a song that, was, that, was, that basically taught us, Lord, teach us how to want your will. Teach us how to love your will. And I remember as a child thinking, well, doesn't everybody love the will of God? Doesn't everybody love what God wants for them? And it was only as I got older that I found out that sometimes I struggle with obeying the Lord. And so it's this thing that if, you're, if you haven't received Christ and the new nature that he gives you, then you find yourself really struggling sometimes with the will of the Lord. So let's begin tonight with Zechariah chapter 9. And in your notes tonight, I put these in verse by verse rather than paragraphs and separated them because you may want to come back and study this a little more closely later. This is the message from the Lord against the land of Aram and the city of Damascus. For the eyes of humanity, including all tribes of Israel, are on the Lord. Doom is certain for Hamath, near Damascus, and for the cities of Tyre and Sidon, though they are so clever. Tyre has built a strong fortress and has made silver and gold as plentiful as dust in the streets. But the Lord, now the Lord will strip away Tyre's possessions, hurl its fortifications into the sea, and it will be burned to the ground. Now, Tyre was a city-state. It was on an island. So imagine an island, and because they controlled a lot of sea trade, gold literally became so plentiful 
that it was compared to dust because they controlled all the trading routes that ran between Rome and Persia and Africa. And because they were isolated from the rest of the land, they had never been invaded before. Alexander actually built a bridge to reach Tyre and burned it to the ground. And so this was this is how this prophecy was fulfilled. The city of Ashkelon will see Tyre fall and will be filled with fear. Gaza will shake with terror as well as Ekron, for their hopes will be dashed. Gaza's king will be killed and Ashkelon will be destroyed. Foreigners will occupy the city of Ashdod and I will destroy the pride of the Philistines. Now, you know, the Philistines had just been enemies of the people of God from as far back as we can read in the Bible. In verse 7, God's going to begin to talk about their gruesome sacrifices. He said, I will grab the bloody meat from their mouths, snatch their detestable sacrifices from their teeth, and then the surviving Philistines will worship our God and become like a clan in Judah. The Philistines of Ekron will join my people as the ancient Jebusites once did. And you'll remember from studying the historical books that actually uh, David spared the Jebusites and they eventually became absorbed into the tribe of Judah, which was another fulfilling a prophecy. And you know which tribe Jesus came from. I will guard my temple and I will protect it from invading armies. I am watching closely to ensure that no foreign oppressors overrun my people's land. Remember, Alexander literally, now I'm not saying Alexander was a believer, but he had had a vision and he recognized that this is being the source of his call to conquer Persia and the temple was spared there. Now we're going to change gears. This is a big shift. Verse 9, rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. Does anybody recognize that? Yeah. Verse 10, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel, the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will be, bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Now, this verse has never been fulfilled in Israel. This is one of those um, millennial verses when Jesus will come and he will rule with a rod of iron and all of his enemies will be put down. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day... I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. Now, look at me for just a second, for those of you that are here. I, I, I'm only stopping just to, because there's some symbolism here most people won't get. If you look at waterless cistern, you're immediately going to think of Joseph in a waterless pit. In the verse, next verse, he says, I will repay double blessings. Now, I could ask you how many want a double blessing. Of course, we all would want a double blessing. But that's exactly what Joseph inherited from his father. He inherited, and Joseph was not the oldest son. The oldest son was supposed to receive the double blessing. <clears throat> and God gave Joseph the double blessing. And, of course, he had two sons. You remember them? Both of those tribes became predominant in the land of Israel. Judah is my bow. Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword. And like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. Now... Look at that. The sons of Javan were Greece, if you're reading some of the older versions of the Bible. 
Then the Lord will appear above his people. His arrows will fly like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the ram's horn and attack like a whirlwind from the southern desert. The Lord of heaven's armies will protect his people. They will defeat their enemies by hurling great stones. They will shout in battle as though drunk with wine. They will be filled with blood like a bowl drenched with blood like the corners of the altar. This is going to be a ferocious battle. And on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How wonderful and beautiful they will be. The young men will thrive on abundant grain and the young women will flourish on new wine. I think as Christians, what we have to look at tonight, and I could continue talking about some of the historical things, but we only have a limited amount of time this evening. As Christians, I think we have to look at this and recognize what some recognized in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and what many are coming to recognize today, and that is Jesus is King. Jesus was the Messiah. I listened today to three Jewish men that I respect. Two are statisticians, one at the University of North Carolina, the other at Talbot Theological Seminary. And I, I listened as these three Jewish people were talking about Christ the Messiah and something I've been looking forward to and watching. And when it came on this week, I, I was just, I was thrilled as I listened and saw how so many Jewish people are coming to know the Lord. One of them came to know the Lord just a few years before I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And during that great Jesus movement revival that swept across America, he had been studying to become a rabbi. And so today, one of the things we need to understand is we don't have to cajole, we don't have to guilt, we don't have to try to manipulate, but we do need to pray for our Jewish friends as well as our Muslim friends and our Hindu friends and Buddhist friends. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> would open their eyes to recognize who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is King. But I think one of the things that makes this verse so powerful to me, if you look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, is look, your king is coming to you. And I put a little box around that word you. Circle that in your outline tonight. Because that's personal. Jesus is coming for you tonight. Jesus is coming for me one night. We recognize our need. And when the Jewish people read this, they recognized something that we need to... They were under the tyranny of Persia's rule. They could not free themselves. You and I can't free ourselves from the power of sin. Only Christ can deliver. And the day is coming when only Christ will deliver Israel as well. <clears throat> Just as Persia and all of Israel's enemies sought to destroy her, pardon me, <coughs> had sought to destroy her, we hear today how that Israel's enemies want to drive her into the sea and completely destroy her. Sometimes our younger generation hasn't grown up hearing the stories of the Holocaust. They haven't grown up seeing and remembering, like some of you remember, how that when Israel was first uh, established as a nation, how all of her enemies rallied against her and were just murdering and killing and waging war, numbers of nations against them. And so for those of us that are younger, we remember, I can remember in the seventh grade, our teacher talking about to us how Israel had, was a victim not only the Holocaust, but of the nations that had gathered around her in the 67 war. And I got to thinking about this. How many times today do we see the news trying to represent Israel as an aggressor and the people who were fighting against them as victims? 
just as we're seeing so many things unfold in the press where the press has misrepresented the truth, we need to be able to trust our press. As much as you need to be able to trust a pastor when he's preaching the gospel, we need to be able to trust the press to give the right. I'm not talking about politics. I expect Democrats to talk Democratic values. I expect Republicans to respect talk Republican values. But when it comes to news, we need the honest truth. When it comes to the Bible, the confidence we have is this is truth. Secondly, what I want you to see is that Jesus, what kind of king is he? Jesus is the king of all authority. Jesus is the king of all authority. My wife is, according to me, an Anglophile. She loves all things English. She loves all things to do with the royalty and all of that stuff. Part of that is because of her family background. But when it comes to movies that I've watched in the past, historical movies, authority is bound up in the ideas of a king. So one night I was watching something with Becky. She wanted me to watch about Queen Elizabeth because she's the longest reigning monarch of England. And when the, 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 the documentary had got done, I looked at her and I said, that lady basically has no power. She has influence, she has, but it's, she doesn't have the power like the kings and the queens of England used to. And when you see Jesus in the New Testament, you would think he didn't have any power. I mean, look at his birth, look at how he lived. You know, he didn't even have a home to call his own. He was crucified. And yet, Jesus possessed all power, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. Nobody could even lay a hand on him until he said it was time. Jesus, in his first coming, was a humble, suffering servant. His enemies couldn't touch him until he said it was time. Look at uh, John 10, verse 17. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it <clears throat> voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. Now, we've got to remember something. We're looking at a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. The Pharisees, the priests, the ruling council, the elders, they had issued an order, we want to arrest Jesus. Remember that? They had told the people, if you know where he's at, we want to arrest him. What did Jesus do? Jesus got on the back of that donkey, that donkey did ever, and he boldly ride into Jerusalem. I mean, he wasn't afraid because he knew until it was time, nobody could take his life from him. And it's interesting because when you read the Gospels, all the Gospels don't contain all the accounts that some of the other Gospels will contain. But all four Gospels contain this account of Jesus fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the king of justice. Righteousness conveys the sense of justice. Jesus is not a corrupt king. Jesus is not an overbearing king. Much of the corruption that I've experienced dealing with in the world, whether it's been hunger, whether it's been poverty, when it's been war, I flew into a nation where overnight, the night before, a revolution had broken out. It was a difficult time to be there. There were bodies on the street when I got there. There were bullet mark parts. It all turned out <clears throat> that the, the leader of that nation, the so-called president of that nation, had been siphoning off funds, having people secretly put to death, having them taken out of the country, anybody that disagreed with him. Well, there was a revolution. And a lot of the poverty, a lot of the crime, a lot of the war that happens in our world is because of corrupt leaders taking advantage of the people they're supposed to serve. Look at me tonight. Don't miss this. There's not a single person that can say Jesus has ever taken advantage of them. 
There's not a single person that can say that Jesus made them poorer. Jesus comes not to serve, to be served, but to service. The Bible says in verse 9, he is righteous, his sense is just. Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 8. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Now, it's important to keep your eyes on that because there's a progression. Jesus, the righteous judge. Remember how he came, humble, riding on the back of the donkey. He will come the second time as a righteous judge. Thirdly, Jesus is the king of salvation. Now, the scripture says in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. There's two ways you can look at this. There's the passive. Jesus Christ died for our sins as a man. He died for our sins. And had the father not raised him again, I mean, <clears throat> he literally gave himself. He became the curse for us. He took sin upon himself. <coughs> Jesus literally took the curse upon himself. He died. And yet the father was pleased to raise him on the third day. So there is in the sense, now this is important. Look at me. This is, don't miss this. This is a huge theological point. There in a sense, Jesus was saved. There was never any doubt that he was going to be saved. Not saved from his sin, but saved from death, which was the price of sin. And if sin did not have a penalty to it, if sin did not have a price to it, there was no sense in God ever sending his son Jesus to die for our sins at Calvary. Death is a result of our sin. That's how it came into this world. Everything changed. There's a theological word called prelapsarian. Prelapsarian is that period of time before mankind lapsed into sin. And what creation was like, we get a glimpse of that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But everything changed after mankind sinned. Verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, not this Zechariah, but John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, prophesied that Jesus that John would prepare the way for the one who was coming to save them, to save the nation. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the angel said he will save his people from their sins. Romans 3, 26, he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, the reason this is important to say that Jesus is the king of salvation is there's a couple of ideas in our world tonight that are wrong. Number one, God is too good, God is too merciful, God is too loving to send anybody to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. People reject Christ and go to hell. That's the bottom line. The second idea in our world is this, that most of us were good enough to go to heaven on our own. And the more we go along as churches move further and further away from the cross, that's the reason we keep pointing to the cross at Woodland. The cross is the center of all we believe. Without the cross, this doesn't matter. And none of us are righteous enough or good enough. I will either stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ or clothed in my own righteousness. And the Bible describes my righteousness as filthy rags, okay? So I want to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Don't you tonight? The fourth thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the king of humility. 
Now, remember I talked to you about Alexander? Alexander got off of his war horse and walked up and lay down before the temple. Before, well, let me rephrase it. Yes, Solomon and David and Saul did not ride horses into Jerusalem. Remember, God forbid Jerusalem to have chariots and war horses. They came in on the back of a mule. That's how they rode in. The mule was a humble animal. The mule was a peaceable animal. The mule was a working animal. And that's how the king, it was only after Solomon that the kings wanted to become like the other kings that they began to ride horses. I was riding this message just a few days after I shared with y'all how Becky, you know, she's talking about my going gray. She called me her silver stallion. I love that, you know, she called me her silver stallion. I'm writing this and I thought, man, I'm sure glad she didn't call me her gray donkey. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Nobody wants to be a donkey. If you're a man, you want to be the stallion. You want to be, you know, that mighty war horse, but the humble little donkey, you know, the common man's animal, the poor man's animal, the, the, the little animal that worked hard. So Jesus comes in, he's humble. He washes the feet of his disciples. Look at what um, Paul wrote. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Listen, I believe, don't, Go away and misquote me on this. I believe in good self-esteem. I believe in healthy self-esteem. But I also believe what Charles Spurgeon said. Most of our problems stem from our self-esteem. Okay? We want to have a good, healthy self-esteem. But most of our problems is we're too easily insulted. And that's what Spurgeon was talking about. People are too easily offended in his day. Look at the day that we live in. You know... A kid can look at you wrong and or somebody can look and they want to get into a fight or pull out a gun or something like that. Listen to what uh, John Newton said about this verse. Happy are these his subjects who dwell under his shadow. He rules them not with rod of, that rod of iron by which he bruises and breaks the powers of his enemies. But with his golden scepter of love, <coughs> he reigns by his own right and by their free and full consent in their hearts. He reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have at all times access and from which they receive in answer to their prayers mercy and peace, the pardon of all their sins and grace to help in every time of need and a renewed supply answerable to all their wants, cares, services, and conflicts. Thank you so much for that water. And then the fifth thing, because I'm running out of time tonight and I want to get all this in, is Jesus is the king of creation. He's the king of creation. Now, I don't think I'm stretching this. I really don't think I'm stretching this. But I've watched my uncles and my dad, I've watched them train animals, break animals. How in the world did Jesus ride on the back of a donkey that had never been ridden before? Remember that? That's what this prophecy was. That donkey, I submit to you, and I'm not doing this to be funny, but I submit to you, that donkey's smarter than a lot of people. Remember Balaam's donkey? He was smarter than Balaam, wasn't he? And that donkey recognized who Jesus was 
And so many people created higher than the animals refused to recognize who Christ was. I want to take you to, this is a verse, and I put this in tonight that I read in my devotions this morning. I was reading through, book, I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy. When the nearest town has been determined, that town's elders must select from the herd a heifer that has never been trained or yoked to a plow. There's a couple things I want you to see. This colt had never been ridden. This donkey had never been trained. This heifer, when it sacrificed, had never been trained. It was also sacrificed on ground that had never been plowed or tilled. Now, this from Deuteronomy is talking about if you discover a body of somebody that's been murdered in a field, then God takes murder very seriously. What that young man did in Texas was a serious thing. All murder is serious. All murder is serious. And so what that young man did, if a body had been found, they had to go find a heifer that had never been yoked to a plow, sacrifice it in a valley that had never been tilled, and the elders of the city had to lay their hands upon it, saying, we are not, innocent. We are not guilty of this man's murder. I want you to remember this. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ took the price upon himself, the price of death, for our, for our sins that we're guilty, that we're guilty of us separating us from God. Our works could not save us. That young cow had never been worked. Jesus was the only one that could save us. And those priests, those elders, and those judges who laid their hands on the priest of that cow, they were saying that we offer this sacrifice in place of this man's life. And Jesus was the sacrifice in place of us. This is a rich, rich theological chapter. Secondly tonight, I know I've been saying first and second, but I have five subpoints here. Jesus is coming to reign. I'll be real brief. Jesus is coming to reign. He will come. He will be Israel's ruler. He will be the world's ruler. He says, look at uh, verse 10. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. Your king will bring peace to the nation. His realms will stretch from sea and from the, from sea to sea and to the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes back, what does the book of Revelation tell us? He won't be coming back on a donkey. He'll be riding a white horse. And when he comes back, he will not be coming as the savior. He will be coming as the judge. When he comes back, he will wage war upon his enemies and defeat them. If you and I, remember I said those cities like Tyre and Ashkelon and Gaza, they were not happy to hear about the prophecy of Alexander's coming. You and I were happy to hear about the return of the Lord. The reason that the rapture and the reason the second coming of Jesus strikes fear into the hearts of so many is not because of all the events that are going to surround it. It's because Jesus will come as a judge for people who have embraced him and accepted him as their Messiah and as their Savior. They will rejoice to see him coming. For people who have rejected him, they will meet him as a judge. Matthew twenty four thirty. And then at the last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven 
with power and great glory. Look at Revelation 19, 15. This is a part of the message. And he will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. If you read those first eight verses, look at me, don't miss this. If you read those first eight verses, this struck terror into the towns that have been Israel's enemies. This struck terror. I'm telling you, the coming of the Lord will bring great joy to us. It will bring terror to those who have rejected him and cursed him. And then finally tonight, what should our attitude be, especially in light of what happened in Texas yesterday? We grieve, we mourn, but we rejoice that Jesus is coming. Because when Christ comes, there will be no more sin, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more sorrow. Governor Greg Abbott was right when he said that was pure evil that took place. And for the people that wanted to, to say that all people are good, for the people who want to say that this is just mental health issues, this is more than mental health issues. And I'm not going to get political with this tonight, but you can block up all the guns, but you won't lock up all the evil. I don't care how they decide to rule on, you know, automatic weapons. That's not the point of what I'm saying. You can lock up all the guns, but you will never lock up all the evil. You can lock up all the knives. You will never lock up all the evil. You can lock away all the crooks and all the drug lords, but you'll never lock away all the evil because eventually... For people who have not yielded to Christ, and even to some of us that have yielded to Christ, we end up doing things that are harmful and hurtful and painful to others. So how can we rejoice in the time we're living in? We do it the same way we do everything else, by faith. We know that Jesus is coming again. So by faith we rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that he came first time. We rejoice that he's coming the second time. You say, well, Pastor, I still Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit of the Lord living in you, you have the ability not to just put on a joyful face, but you have the ability to live and walk in joy because of the presence of the Lord. Jesus has fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. Look again at verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. They're still under Persian domination. And God's calling them to rejoice because your king is coming to you. For every Jewish person that read that, they were, oh, he's coming for me. He's coming for you, Alan. He's coming for you, Diane. He's coming for me. We used to sing a song when I was a kid. He's coming for me. He's coming for me. What joy that will be. He's coming for me. Jesus is coming for you and I. And in Luke chapter 21 and verse 28, Jesus says, so when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up. For your salvation is near. Don't hang your head. Stand and look up. So what do we do with this? Number one, let's live in hope out of what Christ has done for us in the past. Thank God for Calvary. Number two, let's live in hope out of what Christ is doing in the presence. I'll guarantee you all of this evil we see happening, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Texas tonight, or whether it was in Buffalo where uh, a racist went in and killed all of those poor black people, I'm telling you, we're going to see good come. God is going to work. And then number three, live in hope. I find myself more now than ever before, I'm praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Now, if you're young, now listen to me. If you're young, you may not pray that way. I can remember as a child, 
I just was like, Jesus, I don't want you to come until I get to ride the Nancy Hanks to Atlanta. That was a train that ran from Macon to Atlanta. Then when I'm in college and Becky and I got engaged, I remember thinking one night, Jesus, I really want you to come, but I really want to get married to Becky first, you know? Then when our children came along, I found myself, I want Jesus to come. Don't, don't give me, I want him to come, but everything in us should want to live and rejoice and believe there's hope for the future and tomorrow because God is in control. Now, we're going to pray and then here we're going to stop and we're going to have a Q&A time. But we're going to take communion tonight. Because Now listen, and I'm talking to you online. These here are going to be with me a few more minutes. Listen to me. It's not enough for us to look at these facts from Zechariah 9 and go, oh wow, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Oh wow, Jesus is coming again. Something like this should cause us to stop and adore him. Something like this should cause us to go and lift our hands and worship him tonight and to be thankful and grateful for all that Christ has done for us. So let me pray for you this evening, a prayer, prayer, blessing over you. Father, I ask you to open our eyes that we will behold you in all of your glory and grace. Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us in the past at Calvary. We thank you for the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit in our life tonight, who's not only broken the power of sin over us, but Father, you have blessed us, you've saved us, you've healed us. You've given us the ability to have godly and good relationships. You make us salt and light in our community. But you hear us when we grieve and we lament. And Lord, we mourn tonight. Our hearts are broken. Mothers have told me today they didn't want to send their children to school. Some kept their children home from school. Lord, we pray, give those responsible, God, the ability to investigate, to see how this happened. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know how we can better work at preventing this, Lord. Bring us together as a nation and not divided over politics, Lord, but bring us together as a nation. And above all, Lord, this is one more indication to me tonight. We need revival. Holy Spirit of God, your church needs revival and America needs revival. And so we ask you, would you send another revival before you come again? We look forward to your coming, not on a colt, not on a donkey, but coming on a white horse as judge of all the earth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. and amen. God bless you. Good night. Thanks so much for watching. Please let me know that you were watching this evening. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us here at Woodland Church. God bless. Good night.